Well, all of us have probably heard this phrase, and they lived happily ever after, right? Uh, that phrase, as we've mentioned even in the past couple of weeks, t- takes us back to our favorite, maybe our favorite fairy tales that we either read as a kid or, or we read to our children or maybe as young parents are reading to their children right now. Uh, we mentioned that phrase, as I said, on, on week one of this series, that, that everyone is searching for their happily ever after. And so as we hear that phrase, images most likely pop into our heads of a, a you know, prince and a princess riding off into the sunset together with nothing but, but peace and happiness in front of them. That all their problems, all their trials, all their suffering, all of the conflict, all their hard and dark days are now behind them. And that there's nothing in front of them but pure joy and just endless delight in, the, in, in front of them. They lived happily ever after. But again, a fairy tale is a fairy tale, right? It's a story of a, of a land that doesn't exist, right? Instead, we, as we read those stories, we have to be transported there, right? We have to be transported there through our imagination. And then at the end of the story, we have to return back to reality, where we do face problems, where we do face trials, where we do face the dark days. But what if these stories that, that we read, the stories that we've read, the stories that we tell are actual shadows of an eternal reality that God, our creator, has woven into our hearts? What if it's not a prince and a princess that's riding off into the sunset together, but what if it's a glorious king and a bride joined together together? for all eternity, to live in perfect harmony and joy together, that which our hearts and souls long and yearn for? What if there actually is a day coming where all of our troubles and all of our trials, all of those dark days are behind us, never again to be experienced? Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But the story that Scripture weaves throughout its pages, as we've talked about the last five weeks, is this true reality? That the pain that we experience in this world, the suffering that we endure, the physical death that, that's seen, according to Scripture, it's temporary. It's temporary for those who belong to God, that it has a shelf life. That this means that, that all that our hearts long for, that peace and that joy and that satisfaction, all that's woven into those fairy tale stories, salvation. They find their eternal resting place, their eternal home in and through Christ and through nothing else. This means that Scripture is saying you can experience the happily ever after for all eternity. That's what we see in the text before us today that Mark read. That's what we've seen throughout all the Scriptures, this this pointing to this, this eternal reality that those who are in Christ will one day experience forever And ever, this unfolding story of God's redemption through Christ culminates here, culminates here with the establishment of God's kingdom where he reigns, where he dwells with his people for all eternity. It's a dwelling place that's free from death, a dwelling place that's free from pain, that's free from sickness, that's free from tears of sadness, right? This is the eternal life promised to all all who hope and trust in Christ alone. This is the final chapter of God's story of redemption, and yet, and yet the story here doesn't end with just God's people drifting off or floating off into oblivion. 
but rather the, the, the chapter concludes with God's people dwelling with him for all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Do you see why we sing these songs of come Lord Jesus, right? Come thou fount, come thou king, right? This, this eternal longing within our souls for this day to come to fruition. See, as we dive into this text today, I want to start here in Revelation by by kind of framing it out for us. So we're going to kind of start from the outside and we're going to move inside to more detail as we, as, as we progress. But, but again, as we frame things, you also want to begin with a foundation. With any structure, you always begin with building a foundation. So the last five weeks of this series have been spent building on that foundation or building that foundation together. So we're not going to rehash all that other than to say that, that the central figure of Scripture is Jesus Christ. That he is who the story revolves around. So we'll say it again. It's one story about one God saving one people through one Savior. That's the story of Scripture. And it revolves and centers around Jesus Christ, the, the crusher of the serpent's head in Genesis 3. That Jesus is the true and the better Adam. He is the blessing of Abraham. He's the true and better Isaac, the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. Jesus is both prophet and priest and king. He's the perfect and abiding tabernacle where both heaven and earth meet together. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. He's the promise of God. He's the hero of the story. He's mankind's savior. This is Jesus. He's the cornerstone of the faith. Now let's build upon that foundation here in Revelation as we begin to kind of frame out the text for us this morning. So, so again, as you build a, upon a foundation, we're going we're to build four walls this morning, and then we're going to move inside to look at this text in a little bit more detail. So four walls to help frame this text for us. So, so wall number one, I, I titled this way, just two bookends, two bookends, wall number one. Now it's nearly impossible to, to look at the last few chapters of, of Revelation and not be drawn back to the first few chapters in Genesis. These chapters together in Genesis and in Revelation create these two really beautiful bookends which help frame even the whole grand story, the big meta-narrative of, of Scripture, of redemption, how Christ is the, the, the center of it all. So let, let me show you how that's true. Uh, in, in Genesis 1, and you don't have to be turned there. We're going to put all these scriptures up on the screen for you. But you can, if you have your notes, you can mark all these down because they're fascinating to, to go back and forth and look at. But in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we are in Revelation 21. What do we have? We have a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. We'll talk about that, that last line, the sea no more, at the very end today. In Genesis 1, God has the first word in history, right? Verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Revelation 21, God has the final word in history. 21.6 says, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Genesis 1, the sun is created all right, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Carrying on in Revelation chapter 21, there's no longer a need for the sun. In verse 23, it says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it, it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, which is referring to Christ. 
In Genesis 3, the curse is announced because of man's rebellion against God, but when you go to Revelation 22, it's through Christ that the curse is now removed. Revelation 22.3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In Genesis 3, death enters into history. All right, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. But in Revelation 21, death exits history, right? 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Genesis 2, God creates a garden. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man in whom he had formed. In Revelation 21, though, God forms a city, right? Revelation 21, 10 and 11 says, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like, the, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. In Genesis 3, mankind is driven from paradise. Genesis 3, 24 says, He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Mankind is driven from the presence of God. But yet what will we see in Revelation 22? It's a, it's a, res, a restoration to paradise. And Revelation twenty two fourteen says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. There's that return. And that they may enter the city by the gates. One more. In Genesis 3, the devil enters into the story. But in Revelation 20, the devil is removed from the story. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is paradise restored back to how it was meant to be. The king is reigning, and his kingdom is is an everlasting kingdom. That's wall number one, just seeing the, the bookends of Genesis, Revelation, the full story coming together. Wall number two, though, is, is two worlds. Two worlds, meaning this, that, there's, that we're living in between two worlds. We're pilgrims and we're exiles in between these two worlds. See, we live in the here and now, in a world that's still under the curse of sin, but at the same time, we're awaiting, as verse one says, a new heaven and a new earth. So though we reside in, in this world now, we're actually citizens of, a, of another kingdom that's yet to come. This is where the Apostle Paul encourages the church with, with, uh, in, in Philippians chapter 3 when, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, listen, you are or our citizenship is in heaven, right? And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so knowing this truth radically then changes actually how we live as pilgrims and exiles now. Knowing that we're, that we're citizens of, a, of another kingdom yet to come, it actually transforms the way in which we live in this day and age as part of the church of Christ. 
as, as this outpost of the heavenly kingdom. That's what the local church is. It's an outpost of the kingdom which is yet to come and the way in which we live and serve and, and give of ourselves and care for one another and, and proclaim the hope of, of, of Christ. It's, we're living in the, as, as little beams of light in the midst of darkness. We're revealing to the world this is what it looks like to live underneath the good reign and rule of God. And so knowing that and awaiting the kingdom that is yet to still fully come, it changes in how we love and how we serve and how we go from this place engaging with those who have not yet believed in this Christ. See, Revelation 21 reminds us that we're awaiting a better country, a better kingdom. It's actually a heavenly one. And being heavenly-minded allows us to live for the good of others in this cursed and fallen world while we await the return of Christ. It's only when we take our eyes off of heaven that we actually become no earthly good. C.S. Lewis actually said it best. He said this way, he says, if, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set afoot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. And so that's wall number two, this, this reality that we are living between two worlds, the one in which we reside, and yet we're awaiting a better country, a better kingdom, the return of our king. That's wall number two. Wall number three, similar to wall number two, but, but we're also living between two times, two times. Just as we live between two worlds, this, this text is also framing out for us that we also live in between two time periods, right? So what we saw in last week from Matthew's gospel is this announcement of the birth of the king, right? Jesus Christ coming into this world, the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, declared that in him, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in your midst, right? He's ushering in, he's bringing in the kingdom, and so what Jesus accomplished through his, through his incarnation, incarnation means God becoming flesh. What Jesus accomplished when he became flesh and dwelt among us was this, was this piercing through the darkness of human suffering and sin, right? In, in, in a world that was darkened by, by sin, a ray of light pierced through it. This is what Jesus did in his incarnation, that Jesus, through his sinless life and his death and his resurrection, he made a, a way for humanity to be reconciled back with, with their creator, with God the Father. It's through faith in Christ alone that we are justified, that we're declared right, that Christ has in his incarnation and through his life, his death, his resurrection, he defeated death. As he, as he hung on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God for sin. And so now we live as a people of faith in the power of his resurrection, which means that sin no longer has dominion over us. Has no, it has no dominion. We so often live as if it does, but scripture is so plainly clear. Christ, in his resurrection, defeated the power and dominion over sin. That through Christ, that we have strength amidst suffering. We take part because of the resurrection of Jesus in the spread of the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth. See, Christ has broken into history at his first coming. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. The kingdom of God has come. It is a present reality in our hearts as Christ dwells in us. The kingdom of God has come. It is in our midst. 
And yet at the same time, we're living between two times, right? We're awaiting his return. Not only has Christ the King come, but Christ the King is returning. And this text shows us that upon his return, there's going to be this full consummation of his kingdom, of his reign and rule. Right now, through Christ, the power of sin, as we said, has been broken. Right now, because of Christ, all authority has been given to him. So we go and make disciples of all nations. Because of Christ, the gospel is spreading. But upon his return, there's going to be an end of death. Upon his return, there's going to be an end of pain. Upon his return, there's going to be an end of suffering. Upon his return, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Upon his return, the king will reign in perfect peace. This is what we long for and yearn for, which leads us to our fourth wall that we're framing out this morning, is that we live ultimately for one purpose. So you have two bookends, two worlds, two times, but one purpose. See, we live to experience as the church the glory of God through the consummation of his kingdom. We live, I'll say it again, for the glory of God to be experienced through the consummation of his kingdom, his reign, his rule over all things. This is what Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he, in Matthew 6? Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you hear the purpose in that prayer? Right, The yearning and longing in that prayer. God, your name is holy and is valued. It's not being holy and valued in this, in this world. It's being defamed in this world. God, your kingdom needs to come. Your will needs to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We live with this one purpose. I mean, the driving desire of our heart is to, is, is to, is to see the final consummation, to experience the final consummation of God's kingdom where he will reign, where he will rule over God's people for all of eternity, where God's people will find ultimate joy and satisfaction underneath his kingship, life as it was intended to be lived. See, God's eternal kingdom is really what the story of Scripture has been leading to here. God's people, as we defined it week one, God's people in God's place under God's rule, that is the kingdom of God. His people in his place under his rule. We saw that in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. We saw it in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 of blessing and judgment. What's he say to Abraham? I'm going to form through you, Abraham, a covenant people whom I'm going to dwell with in a land that I will give them. We saw it in God's deliverance of Israel from, from, from Egyptian slavery in the book of Exodus. We saw this, this, this longing and yearning for the kingdom of God in the, in the books of the law through the temple and the sacrificial system, right? God's desire through the sacrificial system to dwell with his people, for them to have relationship with him again. We saw in God's leading of the Israelites into the promised land in the book of Joshua. We saw it pictured through the reign of King David. We saw it in the prophets as they pointed God's people to a coming Messiah who would restore them and heal them and reign forever on an eternal and everlasting throne. We saw it through, last week, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Scripture says the word became flesh in John 1 and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it's the same word used for tabernacle in the Old Testament. Like the tabernacle was where God dwelt amongst his people. 
In, in the very next chapter of John, John 2, Jesus refers to himself as that temple. He's the temple of God. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He is that temple. He is, he is where heaven and, and earth and where man and where God unite together. It is Christ and Christ alone where we find our acceptance with God. And it's through faith in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And so the, the invitation even in this moment here, I have to say it, that if you have not yet believed, if you have not yet turned from your sin, the, the message of Scripture is to turn in faith to Christ and be redeemed, to be reconciled or to be saved, to be reconciled to God. And, and to those then who, who do believe, he gives the right Scripture says, to become children of God. I mean, think about the, the, the weight of that, that reality. We are his children, adopted sons and daughters into his family, sharing the full inheritance of Christ. We belong to him. We're his people. This is what Christ accomplished. And now we await his glorious return. See, Jesus comes to earth he defeats the power of sin and death. The Gospels end with his ascension into heaven. He goes back to the Father, and as he goes, he sends his spirit to, to dwell within his people, to remind them of his teaching, and to seal them until that final day of his return. And, and the spirit is given to us to empower us to go underneath the full authority and, and weight of Christ's reign and rule to go make disciples of all nations. That we're going to spread the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do. It's what we're commissioned to do as the church. Spread the kingdom. Proclaim the kingdom of God. To embody the kingdom of God. Like I said a few moments ago, the, the church is an outpost, meaning how we live is, is revealing to a world in darkness, this is what it means, this is what it looks like, though imperfectly, but this is what it looks like to live underneath the reign of a good God. This is what it means to embody the kingdom of God. We're revealing the joy of life under the reign of, of God, our King. And we wait until his return and the final consummation of the kingdom. And as we wait, we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. We sing songs that say, come thou fount. We are, we are aligning our hearts and our minds with what Scripture says and what Scripture calls us to yearn for, the return of the glory of God as he sets up his, his full kingdom over all things. That's the mission. That's the purpose of the church. And so the story of Scripture is one that is heading toward this final reign of Christ, where we will live forever with him, where man and God unite together, God's people, right? The bride of Christ, the church, in God's place, this new heavens, this new earth, right? Under God's rule, which is Christ's authority. Every knee will bow and tongue confess he is Lord. And so that's the framework laid upon a foundation that centers on Christ, our cornerstone, and so what I want to do for our remaining time here is I just want to walk inside. I want to walk inside this text here and, and look at the, an inside look of the kingdom of God as Revelation reveals it here, of God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so first, as we've said, the kingdom of God is comprised of God's people. God's people. That's what we see in verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 21. John says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
We just can't escape the intimacy of this verse. We are going to be his people. We are his people, adopted sons and daughters. I'll never forget the first time I held my, my son and my daughter in my arms the moment they were born. I mean, in that moment, in that moment, there's this like just this flood of emotions that come over you, right? I mean, there's, there's love for sure. There's just delight. There's joy. There's fear, right? Like it's like everything in that moment, you're just kind of feeling this overwhelming feeling of like, this is my child. Like this is my kid. I mean, in that moment, like you're like, I will do anything for you. I will do any, I will lay my life down for you. Like you'll do anything for that child because there's just this overwhelming feeling of just like love you so much, even though we just met, right? We just met. And I'm like, I'm ready to die for you, right? That, that's that intimacy that you have between a, a parent and a, and a child. Well, that's the closeness and the intimacy that we see. I, I mean, in such a even more profound way in, in God's delight for his children, that we are his people. He is our God. And this God provides abundantly. Provides abundantly. See, look at verses six and seven. It says, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this, this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is God's provision for his children. To the thirsty, I will give without payment. You don't have to pay anything. It's paid for. Right? You're gonna, the one who conquers, you're going to have this inheritance, this heritage. All of these things are, are pointing back to, I have it in my notes here, but it just came to mind. Uh, it, it, this, this passage here is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, I think I can find it really, really quick here. Listen to this. Uh, the, the, remember, the, the Old Testament is, is pointing outside of itself. What, what did Isaiah say? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. What's, what are we seeing in Revelation 21? It's, it's the fulfillment of that prophecy, of, that, of, of, of Isaiah pointing outside to a future day that will be realized in the Messiah. God is saying to those who belong to me, come to the thirsty, drink. You don't have to pay anything. It's paid in full, right? You'll, you'll inherit everything. It's Ephesians, Ephesians 1. Blessed, blessed are those we share in the inheritance of, of Christ. Why? Because we're united with him. It's not because we've conquered. It's because Christ has conquered. And because we're in Christ, we share in that heritage, in that inheritance. This is the full fruition of all scripture coming together right here to his children. We get everything, and even though we've done nothing. Right? God is the beginning of history. He is the end of history. He, is, he has the first word and he has the last word. Before there was time, God was. For all of eternity, future God is. Right? He is the alpha. He is the omega. And what this verse also points to is that there's coming a day when all people will come face to face with God, the omega. This means all people will come face to face with the end. And for all who have trusted in King Jesus, to them will be granted eternal life. To the thirsty, he provides these springs of living water, this everlasting joy without payment because it's paid in full. And Christ will experience the fullness of joy forevermore. To, to the one whose trust is in King Jesus, they're, they're gonna inherit the kingdom as sons and daughters of God. All that belongs to Christ will ultimately be ours through faith in him. This is what awaits God's people. And yet at the same time in, in this text, there's a, there's a word of warning to all who also meet 
the Omega who have rejected Christ as king. That's what we see in verse 8. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, for those who reject Christ, they're going to be met not with everlasting joy, but they'll be met with eternal suffering and irreversible justice. It's a warning to all who look to themselves to be their source of justice, peace, righteousness. See, for all who turn away from the glory of God, who reject the glory of God, who reject the king of glory, they will receive the same outcome as Satan, eternal judgment underneath the holy wrath of a holy God. It's a warning we must all hear. It's a warning we must all hear. Because it's not just the, the, the detestable or the murderers or the sexually immoral or the liars who meet this fate, but, but notice the first two words he uses to describe who also meets this fate. It's the cowardly. It's the faithless. Right? Those who at one point declare Jesus is king but have turned from him. Those who loved the world more than they loved Christ. Those who did not persevere in the faith but turned in order to save their own lives, who valued comfort over the king. This is not a text, don't hear me wrong, it's not a text that teaches that you can lose your salvation. Salvation is of God. It's not of you, it's not of me. Salvation is of God, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But it is one that reveals that there are imposters within the church. These are defining people, describing people that are within the church. It's describing these imposters, one who say one thing, but they really believe another. And it's ultimately, honestly, a lot of times through suffering and trials and the worldly pleasures in life and the delights of the eyes and the heart that reveal actually where their one true king is, and it's not Christ. They may speak a good game, talk a good game, act a good game, but in reality, they do not belong to the one true king. It's a text that reveals that morality will not save you. Well, I'm a good church member. I'm a good church person. I do good things, right? To, to look at that as your source of salvation is to trust in a weak foundation that cannot hold you. Morality will not save you. We can look the part of a Christ follower, but in reality, we can be a fake, and God will not be fooled. It's a word of warning. But second, as we look at the inside of God's kingdom, we also see this, that it's God's place. God's people in God's place. Verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now as we hear that, that, that verse read, keep it in the context of, of verse 3. Right? We dwell with God. This, this text is all about those who belong to Christ dwelling with him. See, heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven will be filled with people who love and desire to be with God. If you remove God from heaven, you don't have heaven. And true followers of Christ don't want to be there if God's not there. Follower of Christ says, where's God? That's where I want to be. The new heaven and the new earth, in, in one sense, is a return to Eden. It's a, it's a place where God dwelt with his people in, in perfect fellowship. And, and that's what God's kingdom is. It's a place of eternal fellowship 
with God. That's the glory of heaven. We're in fellowship with our creator. And if you were to keep reading through Revelation 21, you'd see that the, the next section details out the, the dimensions of this holy city that God is preparing. We're not going to go into the, the details of it other than to mention that that the, the, the dimensions that John lists here detail a, a squared city. There's a lot of detail put here. Now, the question is why? Why is this? Why this detail here? Well, think back really quickly to the book of, of Exodus when God gives detailed instructions on the building of the tabernacle. Very detailed instructions on the building of the tabernacle and that which would be within the, 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 the tabernacle, which would be the inner room, a squared Room, the holy of holies, the place where God's presence dwelt. What do we see now in Revelation? We see one giant holy of holies, a place where God now dwells with his people, that we can enter into the presence of the holy because we're in Christ. That's the glory of heaven. We are with God forever. That's the point of this passage. This is what our hearts as, as Christ followers must revolve around when we think of eternity, right? I want to be with God. I want to be with him in his presence. And I long for that, yearn for that. It's not the, uh, he's building me mansions, right? It's not a, oh, I can't wait to get my mansion. How nice and luxurious that's going to be. That is such a, a, a humanistic, materialistic way of looking at heaven. It's a self-centered way of looking at it. No, everything in scripture is pointing to this reality that we are dwelling with him, that that's true joy, All right? We're drawn to the hope of dwelling with our God forever and ever. We're going to be with him face to face, God's people in God's place. Lastly, God's kingdom is God's rule. Verses four and five reveal this. He's gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Just rest in that reality. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. See, when Jesus, as we said, first came into this world, he delivered us from sin's dominion, its power. He's freed us from it and, and has provided a way of salvation. Yet, we, we're sitting here today still feeling the effect, all right? Feeling the, the effect of sin in our lives. We still sit here today experiencing the fallenness of a, of a cursed world that's still in need of, of healing, Though we now have the hope of Christ, though, though we don't grieve as those who grieve that don't have Christ, we grieve with hope. We still experience pain. We still experience suffering and death and disease. Our, 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 our newspapers, our news articles are, are still filled with headlines of violence in the world. Poverty, injustice, abuse. The world is still cursed. Death still has a, a sting to it. The church lives under the, the power of Christ, seeking by God's grace to reveal the light and the hope of Christ. But our hearts, as we walk through suffering, still are yearning then and longing for him to return to eradicate the curse from God's world. If you read Romans 8, that's what Romans 8 is pointing to. Even all of creation is groaning inwardly for the return when, when the curse will be lifted and life will be back to how it's designed and meant to be. One of the things I say at funerals is, is that the, the evidence of grief in the room is evidence that this is not how it's meant to be. Like the, that we feel grief, that we feel this sadness. It's something even deeply woven within us. 
That, that it's, like we, it's almost like we remember or we know deep within our souls what life was like before the fall and now something's broken and we yearn for this to be right. This is what awaits us though. It's what Revelation reveals to us. That there's coming a day when he's gonna wipe away every sad tear from our eyes. Why? Because sadness will no longer exist. No longer will we mourn because, because nothing will be lost to mourn over. No longer will we cry because pain will be gone. No, no longer will death have any sting because death will be no more. In looking forward to this great day of Christ's rule over creation, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth. Listen to what he wrote. He says, when the, when the perishable puts on imperishable. So he's looking toward this, this future day. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In God's kingdom, under God's rule, death will, will be replaced by life. Night will, will be replaced by light. The curse will be replaced by blessing. Sin will no longer exist. In verse 1, when it says that the, the sea will be no more, this is a, a picture of, of not of water being a, a bad thing, but throughout the book of Revelation, the sea is seen as like this image of evil. And it's, it's seen as this image of, of this place where wickedness and evil comes from. And so when, when he says here that the removal of the sea, the sea will be no more, he's, it's his way of saying evil will be gone. Sin will be no more. This is the story of God. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of hope. This is the story of our future as those who belong to Christ. It's one story about one God saving one people through one Savior. Jesus is the hero of this story. So may our hope and our joy and our life and our worship and our delight be found in him for his glory and the good of all people. Let's pray.